Hey, this is Dan Quiggle with episode 53 of Garage to Goliath, Leaders Building Legacies podcast. I'm really excited for this episode with Trevor Moad. Trevor is the president of Moad Consulting Group and the CEO and co-founder of Limitless Minds. He excels as a mental conditioning coach to elite performers and has worked closely with prestigious NCAA football programs and coaches. Trevor has been part of eight national championship appearances and has additionally supported the U.S. Special Operations Community, Major League Baseball, the NBA, UFC, and many other elite professionals and organizations. He has been featured in both sports and mainstream media, including Sports Illustrated, USA Today, ESPN, Fox Sports, and NPR. You will definitely want to check out the show notes for this episode, episode 53. You can find them at quigglegroup.com forward slash 053. That's quigglegroup.com, Q-U-I-G-G-L-E, group.com, forward slash 053. Also, please rate, review, and subscribe to this leadership podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Your feedback helps us improve and also gets the message out to more listeners around the world. To rate, review, and subscribe, please visit quigglegroup.com forward slash iTunes. I can't wait for you to hear from Trevor Moad. Enjoy. Imagine getting to speak around the world, meeting the most successful, positive leaders, then getting to choose from that group. That's what this podcast is all about, learning from the best how to be your best so that we can challenge ourselves to lead with purpose, impacting lives and changing communities. I'm so glad you're part of this leadership podcast community where together we learn, lead, and leave a lasting legacy. Trevor, so happy to have you on my podcast. Thank you for being on the show. Um, first of all, I want you to explain uh, to my listeners a little bit about who you are and uh, give them a little bit of, a, of your background. Yeah, well, this was uh, probably the, the least furthest I've had to travel. Uh, I just traveled about eight feet uh, over to, uh, to your, your place, Dan. And uh, I want to thank you and your family. You have such a great family. You've been very inviting and uh, as I sneak over and steal food occasionally. Well, let me, actually, let me explain that. So, so how we met. So I wish I could say it was on a G, you know, GQ cover. We were both GQ yeah. cover models. Uh, we're neighbors. And I have enjoyed having you over, uh, eating some chicken soft tacos, drinking some margaritas, you know, hanging out, watching the sunset over the ocean uh, with the whole group. But you know what I've loved the most is uh, our talks. And, and because I think you've got great insight and you've really changed my thinking on a lot of things with regard to leadership and, and how we uh, show up each day. And it's been refreshing and insightful conversation. So I want to thank you and, and say that I appreciate yeah, you Yeah, likewise. That. No, I, I think it's it, the field of human performance in and around, you know, whether it's a leadership or mindset or sports psychology or business psychology. I mean, everything to some degree is a first cousin, life coaching. Um, but, you know, it all started for me. I, I was raised in Seattle, Washington, and my father was a, a high school basketball coach and a teacher. And um, in the 60s, if you were going to be a, 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 a coach um, most of your uh, secondary education was going to be um, a, a master's degree in PE. So my father had a master's degree in physical education from Central Washington University, and he did his thesis on democratic coaching. So this whole idea about how empowering players to be leaders and the 12 players on the high school basketball team ranked each other from 1 to 12, and then based on where the numbers ranked, he came up with the starting five. And, you know, so it was this sort of 
unique thing. And that was, I think, maybe in um, 1961 wow. when he did that. And so he um, he would be he would coach pretty much until the mid 70s. He's he's uh, in the Hall of Fame in Washington State, won a state championship. And in the mid 70s, after being a teacher and a coach and teaching social sciences, over the years he'd been teaching these courses called Pep Talks, and Pep standard for Personal Enrichment Principles, and they were uh, for the different high school students and different teachers on maximizing the human asset, how to get the most out of your mind. And he'd always been fascinated and really well read. Uh, initially, I think on the Christian side with Dr. Norman Vincent Peale. Uh, but then a lot more of uh, Zig Ziglar, Brian Tracy, Maxwell Maltz, all those people. Um, and then really in, in 75, he, he, he took the risk, I'm going to leave a teacher's salary and a coaching salary. He had been offered the coaching job at the University of Utah. Um, he felt like my mother wasn't a coach's wife. So he was going to give up teaching and travel around high schools and speak at assemblies on uh, personal enrichment principles and and really this sort of first step into uh, the psychology of your mind. And he would join this company called the Pacific Institute uh, with another five coaches that were all high school uh, football coaches, basketball coaches, but really successful. This was led by a guy named Lou Tice. And, um, and then really throughout the 70s and early 80s, they kind of formed one of the top business consultancies uh, in the Seattle area, working with Boeing and working with IBM and working with companies. Uh, and initially, the plan was uh, companies realized an eight and a half hour workday in the 70s, the average employee productivity was four hours a day. And if an employee was dealing with any type of financial distress or emotional distress or challenges, that would drop down to 1.5 hours a day. So CEOs and business leaders realized like you're not going to be able to get the most out of uh, your business with 17% of effectiveness if an employee is going through divorce or, or unique challenges or best case scenario, 50%. Um, so a business was kind of companies, I think, in the 70s, 60s, 80s started to realize, man, we, we, should, we should take a couple days and, and take our people out to a, a leadership event or a retreat or sign up for this system or this process they would create in the 70s investment in excellence. My dad would leave that company in the 80s and create this business consultancy thing around increasing human effectiveness, which was essentially Starbucks can buy 16,000 uh, uh, units that have eight CDs and there has a video facilitator trained to teach the model. And then it has all sorts of follow-up and workbooks. And uh, you know, it became a really good business um, and so my whole life, I was raised with my dad not being a coach, but my dad working, uh, you know, for Pat Carr, for Boeing, for Bell South, for uh, all the different types of things. And uh, my mom would say, as we as I started working on the book, um, you know, I, I was raised almost entirely different than my brother. We were seven years apart, and I was almost my dad's sort of science project. So. Uniquely, I was raised the son of, in, in a pr similar way to Corinne, although you had... That's uh, my daughter, by the way. Yes, yes. you have a, a, you had, you transitioned from a highly successful businessman to taking those principles and explaining those combined with the leadership principles. <clears throat> my dad would have, you know, been a successful coach and taken some of those principles and then really been more of like a, a, a teacher of human uh, performance principles. So... Um, you know, 
it, it, I kind of feel like a, an Eli Manning or a Peyton Manning who were raised to play football that probably in a unique way I was raised to teach uh, the power of self-efficacy and, and things along those lines. Even though, Dan, I, I, if you had asked me at 7 years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, 18 years old, 20 years old, that was never my plan. I wasn't like, I want to be like my dad. I wanted to do my own path. I was really individualistic. How at 24 years old I ended up sort of being in the same field, you know, is it's, it's, a, it's a separate question. Well, I think it's interesting because in chapter five of your book, you talk about this negativity diet, you know yeah. what I mean? And, uh, and you do talk about your dad and, and he was a positive force in your life. I got that feeling in the book, but he's also pretty hard on you. It seemed yes. like, you know, he was tough on you and there were rules. Yes. And so how, and you know, I was going to wait till later, but I mean, since we're talking about your dad, I think, cause I think it is fascinating. I mean, having that upbringing that person around you, talk to me about those rules and how they kind of affected your life and kind of framed, you know, shaped who you are. Yeah, it was, um, the sort of educational platform coming out, I think, in the 70s was, you know, there was negative thinking and there was positive thinking. And then there were obviously going to be, uh, you know, all the, the the unique tenets of visualization, of imagery, of how to lead, all the different elements. Um, my dad really never uh, put an emphasis on me uh, about being positive and really that whole movement. We had a very strict sort of rules. There was no uh, evening news. Um, we, we couldn't watch any news. I couldn't listen to country music, no rhythm and blues, uh, was not allowed to say the word can't. And, uh, was sort of raised from the age of four on with a verbal governor. Um, and language was really important. And then the minimization of, of the negativity that we bring in. And, um, I didn't understand it at the time. Uh, but I think what he, what he sensed was, negativity, the strength and the power of it, particularly bringing it into your own home, um, you know, can affect your psyche. Uh, well, you, you say it's like, what, 40 to 70% more powerful than positive? I mean, yeah, as, as we ultimately would, would study it, basically what we found out through Georgetown and, and, and Harvard is that negativity uh, or de-energization is a multiple of four to seven times more powerful than positivity. Um, and anybody who'd be listening who would debate that, they would just be wrong. I mean, the, the, the simple truth is um, we were designed as human beings 10,000 years ago, 15,000 years ago, um, to assume negative first as a safety mechanism for danger, you know, and our... Uh, and we needed it because dinosaurs and we could fall through a, a fire or a cave or whatever, but that doesn't exist anymore. But our mind is still wired to assume negative first and, and really see the negative first way more so than we would naturally see positive. And that goes back to the saying, like it takes, you know, a lot of attaboys to get over one, you know, horrible comment, right? With, within a relationship right. or with anything else. Um, so, so go back to your dad for a second, cause this, this is fascinating mm-hmm. to me. So your father, um, you know, he, he, he had all these rules. I mean, I've got listeners. I mean, they've got families, they've got kids. They're, they're on their computers all the time. They're watching the news. It's negative. They're watching negative stuff online. Like, I mean, would you espouse that as a philosophy for parents today? You know, I think it's it's interesting. I'm, you know, early 40s, well, I guess now approaching my mid 40s. And um, be, because of sort of the lifestyle I've chosen, um, you know, married 12 years, uh, but I've traveled, you know, 250 days um, a year. Um, 
I, we haven't had kids. We haven't had a family. So I've, I've lived sort of a different life. But in my 12 years working at sort of the biggest high school sports academy, IMG Academy in the world, you learn a lot about the different parenting styles. You know, how was Maria Sharapova parented? How would versus Michelle Wee versus Freddie Adu versus Michael Phelps versus all the different types of things. I don't know that there's a right way or there's a wrong way. What what I know is if I could, you know, if I went back 35 years um, and was to say, how would my dad have raised me in the cell phone era, in the Twitter area, in the Snapchat area, uh, in the Instagram area, you know, era, um, I would have been very well educated on the risk reward relationship. Um, he would have given me some flexibility to make some decisions, but he also would have in our house regulated elements of that. Uh, but, but really more, but he would have made sure I understood why. And I think, you know, so, um, the consequences, the consequences the, the, of these actions, the, that, the consequences yes. are, 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 are significant, but you, but for me, education and information is power. And when we, when kids understand, you know, uh, I was married to a model. Um, and so, you know, that's such a competitive environment where you're basically, your life is like you're a clothing hanger. And like, they want these skinny types of people, because it's built really on a clothes hanger, just like to hang clothes on. So what brings out the, you know, and I, but I saw the power of Instagram and how that could influence her emotionally. And, and then you start to define yourself by who you think you're not. And that was where I think when I go back to the way I was raised, I always understood my, my goals were to be the best version of me, not to really compete and compare with these things that I'm, that I'm not. And, um, so much right now of life is a, a comparison. The world's going to compare you. You know, when you're hiring people for your businesses, you're going to compare people. When you're competing in uh, the AVP, you're going to be compared. When you're going through the NFL draft, you're going to be compared. Um, but how you compare yourself, so the influence of, of the social media, it's just discipline, you know, um, or consequences. You know, I watched 17 minutes of news yesterday. I tried to balance... Uh, uh, Eight minutes of one station, four minutes of another station, five minutes of another station. But I was very mindful. Like I was in a, I was in a mood where I thought it was funny, like I, I, to be entertained, you know. But not a lot of people understand the consequences of what they're watching and what they're consuming. So wait a minute, stop right there, because now I'm intrigued. So you watch oh, how many minutes? Seventeen minutes? You said of news? Yes. So now was that intentional? I mean, do you, do you literally yeah, clock it? I mean, are you are you? No, saying, I, I, yeah, I, I clocked it. So so I basically. Uh, and, and does this happen every day? No, uh, it all depends on where I'm at um, emotionally and whether I'm going to bring the news into to my life. You know, I've lived next to you for a while now, and I had this three months where I was gone like almost every day. I've set the schedule up these next few weeks to be back a lot more. So when I'm back, sometimes and I have time, I don't know what to do. So I have to really manage, okay, I'm going to watch um, this documentary. I'm going to watch this on HBO but I, I, I'd been really out of touch with the world, so I wanted to sort of replug in with the world. Normally, what I do to replug in with the world, I call friends of mine from the special operations community, and I basically just say, "Hey, give me an update on you know what's what's happening, what's happening." But um, you know, the news you know has a very specific bias, so I just try to balance it. 
And then, and yesterday I wanted, I want, I just, I, I, my goal was to do 30 minutes, but after watching some of it, I was like, this is, <laughs> this is enough. This is enough. You know what I love about that? And I want my listeners really to think about this for a second. It, it, it's being intentional about who gets your time, about yes. where you're getting your information from, how you're filtering that information. And I, and I would say this, I mean, and now I'm going to editorialize for a second, yeah. but I mean, before we attack others' ideas, we may want to attack our own, right. like challenge ourselves. And, and that's why so. I appreciated that you brought up the fact that you're listening to multiple news stations, you, yeah. you know what you're getting, um, you know that it's going to be slanted and maybe one way or another, right, left whatever yeah. it is but then you can then filter that information do with which you know with it right. what you want and and th- this is why i love you man I mean, I mean seriously in our conversations i think you're open minded you're you're always looking for the best way to help people the best way to help yourself yeah. to, to move yourself forward and it comes from a foundation and and I, i'm going to kind of switch gears here for a second yeah. but i mean I, I could list forever serena williams maria sharapova eli manning Tony Romo, Russell Wilson, who your is your business partner? Yeah. You know, Alabama football, Florida State, New York Mets. You've been tapped to be the mental coach for so many elite athletes. And now you've got this book coming out, It Takes What It Takes. And you gave me an advanced copy and mm-hmm. I, I I just finished it last night. And I have to tell you, I called my family like 10, 15 times, kids, That's you awesome. know, who are out of the house, telling them different parts because it just it just really affected me in a very positive way. But the main tenet of that is this whole philosophy of neutral thinking, which mm-hmm. just blew my mind because I'm an optimist. I'm yep. not a blind optimist. If this building's burning, mm-hmm. let's get out, right? right? But I also know I can only control what I control. But you said, Dan, there's, there's, a, there's room for optimism. There's going to be negativity. But in the end, these real superstars are neutral thinkers. For my listeners right now, explain to me neutral thinking. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think if you're an educator, so I, I take great pride in... You know, it's it's been fun to be back in Southern California. I went to school up the road at Occidental College, um, and I've always had a really like keen understanding of myself, my strengths, you know, my areas for improvement. Um, and when I went to Occidental, I was like way over-indexed. I mean, you know, you had all these kids from Phillips Academy and all these, you know, these in- incredibly bright kids, but I found a way, you know, to, to build my place to go to undergrad and graduate school. And then ultimately I would go, uh, as I aspired to be a pro soccer player, um, I wasn't making enough money to have anything other than lawn chairs in my house. So I, I began teaching in LA Unified School District. Well, as I would teach, um, while I'd be given a curriculum and I'd be given a set of social science textbooks, I realized you have to meet your students where they're at. And ultimately, as I would move on to IMG Academy, this, this sort of Hogwarts for athletes, and begin this set of your job is going to be to educate and teach these psychological principles to a wide array of athletes, including many of the best athletes in the world, who were coming to the academy, not for you, but you would be a part of their experience. So in the early 2000s, I realized, okay, I'm going to get access to Cade McNown or Tim Couch or Byron Lefwich or Tony Romo or Eli Manning. I'm going to have an opportunity to educate them first on how to take a psychometric test, you know, open-ended versus fixed questions, uh, the Wonderlick test, all the things. And the agents were like, yes, they need to learn how to do that. Well, I don't know how to teach any of that. So I, my, part, my business partner, Chad Bowling, who's with the Yankees and the Cowboys, we learned how to teach that. Well, then secondly, we said, well, how can we help them actually go to the NFL Combine and be better, right? And, and 
yes, they're they're in Bradenton, Florida. They're learning how to run 40-yard dashes. They're learning how to bench press 225, all these other elements. But there's a psychological component. This is the biggest pressure of your life in four days. So we started teaching um, uh, the you know, ideas in and around, you know, being more positive and, um, you know, educating. And, and we had this sort of platform where, okay, now you got these really t- talented tennis players, football players, baseball players, what interests them? And over the course of like the, the 10 years, I started to realize that the athletic population at the high level really struggled with the power of positive thinking. And it, and it, it, it sort of mirrored the way that I struggled with it. And um, I, I, I knew the alternative negative thinking wasn't good. But in the absence of not being negative, it never felt organic for me to be positive. So I just struggled with that. And then I would literally, Dan, teach 8 to 10 hours a day from 2001 to 2012 from 150 Venezuelan kids to 16 of the best tennis players in the world. Um, and so now, like in LA Unified, the way I needed to adapt a U.S. history cur- curriculum to make sense to a largely Central American population, um, you know, how I might explain the containment doctrine, you know, like how the containment doctrine or policies from Carter or Reagan would influence first-generation kids from El Salvador you know, like I learned how to teach that in a way where I really started to understand like, okay, these people were, def- yes, we were fighting communism, but it wasn't necessarily good for a six-year-old in El Salvador, mm-hmm. you know, who we were supporting. So how were these kids there? Why, why were those kids there? I mean, I'm just curious, like, and, and what classes were you teaching? So I had 11th grade and 9th grade. Okay. But the, at IMG Academy. Well, no. Well, first in LA Unified. Okay, for, for, and all my students were Central American. Okay, okay. Now I get. Okay, now and, and I, so, but like taking you and I, I'm I'm coming from Charles Wright Academy, where I had 47 kids in my high school graduating class. 20 go to the Ivy League. Then I go to Occidental, where Jack Kemp, Obama, all these different people went. And now I'm teaching in LA Unified, where I have 45 students per class. Right. Yes. And I'm teaching U.S. history, but essentially, like I would learn, like. I have to make this make sense for them. And then uh, this is a roundabout way, but ultimately what I started to realize when I would, I would be hired by the Jaguars, I would go to the Miami Dolphins, and I'd get this opportunity with Nick Saban at Alabama. And sports psychology sounds like a cool industry, but to me it would be like, I would be considered one of the best in the world at it, but it would be like being one of the best badminton players in manhattan beach like nobody cares about sports psychology it's not a competitive industry there aren't people there are no jobs so well let me interrupt for a second yeah. because here, here's why that's interesting to me so i guarantee you so that's your perspective I that is my that. perspective okay so that's your perspective here's the most interesting part if you ask any coach how much of it is mental? They will give you, I guarantee you, some crazy number, 70, 80, 90%, right? Yeah. But then how much are they spending in each practice Correct. talking about that? Probably yeah. zero. Zero. It's it just, there was never a business model for it. So I would argue that it's the Nick Sabans of the world, it's these others that understand the importance of that, that are, that are the ones hiring you, that are bringing you in, that understand that you can't have one without the other. Correct. You can have all the physical attributes in the world. If you are breaking down on the court every single time, it's not going to work out for you. 
Correct, but but the 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 truth of college and professional sports is you have an infinite supply of talent. So if Corinne or your wife, uh, who's Corinne's uh, partner, if they, by the way he's our sound manager, I want to explain this. So Brad, Brad sitting, Brad sitting right here. So yeah, and and, and so Brad, who helps me with the podcast, um, his his wife, my daughter, play on uh, the pro tour together. So if those two are playing together, right? Well, well, essentially, if they can't sustain the standard. You just get rid of them, and you bring somebody in who who can, and that's the the truth of pro sports. So, how much time is spent on actually developing talent? Really, the standards created, and it's their athletes' responsibility to be able to to adhere to it. And so, um, that's just the truth. So, your your selection process, you're getting the best. So, you're already picking people who are predisposed with these great attributes, and so there's. There's never really been a, a business model, in my opinion, for um, sports psychology outside of a rare few people who said, well, what if Dan Quiggle's already really good, and what if my job is to make him better? So, And there's an element of that that's going to be psychological as much as it's going to be physiological or strategic. Okay, you drop here, I go up here, you cover this side, I cover that side. And I think that, so ultimately... Um, my opinion is, uh, you know, either the business model of colleges, the business model of pro sports, there's really never been, every coach says there's an, an element, but most coaches' strategy is hope. Let's just <laughs> hope. And hope is not an effective strategy in any part of your life, in any part of your business, uh, and certainly in the athletic world, unless you, you want your ass to be fired, right? But 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 you talk about that in the book, and, and and I think that what I found interesting about the neutral thinking is um, the way you describe it in certain situations. So you talk about Russell Wilson a lot in the book. Yes. And you talk about how, like, let's say he's down you know, X number of points. Um, to go to the team with five minutes left and say, hey, we got him right where we want him. Right. Like, that's just not realistic. So yeah. that positive thinking doesn't work. To yeah. say it's all over, that negative thinking, well, it's not, because you still have five minutes. Correct. So then it's this fact-based mentality. And, I, and you even described it. You said, you know... Um, it's high performance strategies that emphasize judgment free thinking. Correct. You know what I mean? Where all of a sudden now we can just look at the facts. Talk about like how Russell Wilson would walk himself through that scenario. Yeah. So essentially, the last point was once I realized uh, when I got to, to Alabama and Florida State, Coach Saban and Coach Fisher, I want an educational platform psychologically for everybody. Okay, well, sports psychology has usually been, okay, someone's having a problem. Well, now you are developing an educational platform for everybody, and I'm realizing that, okay, we lost, be positive is not resonating. So in my mind, I start to study, well, where is the real strength? And I started to see that negativity was so much stronger than positivity that what if we first go at attacking in our organization, minimizing negativity? Well, what carries negativity? Where does negativity have its most most power? Is it a feeling? Is it something we're watching? Is it something we're listening to? No, it's language. So when I say something out loud, it's 10 times more powerful than when I think it. And what we realize is in 22 hours a week that the NCAA provides, you can't attack inner thoughts. Inner thoughts are hard. I mean, that's meditation. That's affirmations. That's all like, and, and, and the inner thoughts, everybody has doubt everybody's, I don't know, can I do this? Can I not do this? 
is the plane going to land? Is it not going to land? Like, there's not a, a lot of strength to that. But when you say it out loud, it's 10 times more powerful. And if it's negative, it could be a multiple of four to seven times. So if I'm saying negative things out loud, then that could be increasing the opportunity for that negative thing to happen by a multiple of 40 to 70 times. So I came to that information be, in, in a very practical way of, I got 30 minutes, or I got 10 minutes, or I got two 30-minute sessions per week, or I got eight 30-minute sessions. How am I going to get this information to these guys uh, You know, that's going to ultimately help them? And by minimizing negativity, I could sell athletes that the externalization of their negative thoughts did not help them, so I could get them to stop. But when you try to tell them, stop that, and then be positive, they had a really difficult time understanding that. And then what I started to learn was, what if we just weren't negative and never taught an alternative? So what we focused on early on was just not saying stupid things out loud. And our culture flipped because by not being negative, the mind had more psychological agility because it wasn't bogged down by this negativity to just solve problems. But ultimately, I realized as we, we were moving forward, at some point, you you can't just not do your way to succeeding. So I started thinking about it. Neutral had been this idea that Taoism had explored, Buddhism had explored, but it was all, it was almost this implication of like no emotion. That's not what I was thinking. I was thinking that a car goes backwards and it can't go from backwards to forwards. It has to go somewhere in the middle, which is neutral. And I remember literally being in my car at the time and then, and then, so what does neutral look like, you know, uh, in a car? Well, it, it, it's sort of this transitional state. And so as I started to, to think about uh, what's the difference between positive and neutral, I think neutral is an acceptance that whatever happened, happened. And what positivity does is it requires us, you get divorced to say, well, I get to meet all these new people. No, you're divorced. That hurts. You're not thinking about meeting new people. You're, you're in, a, in a painful state, so your mind moving to the fact you get to be with other people now, it, it, it's not a fair jump. So you have to go through this. This is difficult. This is challenging. But the emotion isn't going to determine what happens next. My behavior is. So the acknowledgement that good or bad happens, but what happens next is based upon my behavior and what I do not how I feel, but I also have to give credit to what happened and that obstacle or that success. So we started focusing on um, if things are going bad, I can still be, I can still behave in a way that that can change the outcome, but I can't guarantee the outcome will change. So positivity is like, I don't care that we're down thirty-eight points. We're going to find a way to win. That doesn't resonate with a lot of people. Hey. Forget about the score, keep your pad level low, stay low, extend your arm, compete, go from side to side, get more players involved, things that we can do that are independent of an outcome. And so Russell was raised in this idea of we're not focusing on any outcome, we're focusing on behavior and non-judgmental behavior, whether we're up or down, 
if I do this, what gives me the best chance to succeed, even if I was doing good or bad? Because there is no real momentum in sports. Your behavior creates your momentum. Yeah, and, and, and I love this part of the book where you said only three things matter. What has happened is happening and will happen. And I just, I thought from a business standpoint, I mean, I mean, a lot of my listeners are successful CEOs or mm-hmm. leaders within their companies. Um, they're, they're salespeople. They're trying to make it in the world. But, you know, I love that only three things matter. What has happened is happening and will happen. Correct. And I think what has happened is you can't run from that. You're accountable for that and you're responsible for that. But what's also happened, Dan, is, is, is we've become the idea of realism right? Versus optimism. Realism is like, hey man, it just, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. This is what it is. Well, if, if realism for you is we've had three really bad quarters, we're underperforming our product dissatisfaction, certain, you know, just business truths, this is our reality. It would be your reality right now. But if you believe any of the statistics in and around negativity and you're reaffirming your your negative reality in this moment, it automatically bleeds into your future. So acknowledging we didn't do well, but these are the things we need to do to change that, accepting that they're not changed yet, but I'm going immediately to what I can do. You know, when I was talking with uh, one of the coaches from the Clippers, uh, we were going through kind of the season... Um, and, uh, you know, I said, one of the things Coach Saban would always talk about, a season, uh, a business year, a fiscal year is always going to be defined by what can I do? Those four words. And your employees are either going to be saying, what can I do as an exclamation point? Like, what can I do? Right? Bosses this way. The product's this way. I have these medical devices. I don't have enough demand for supply or whatever. Or what can I do? Right, And when we ask, what can I do as a question, we're constantly in a position where we're in control of what's happening next. Russell, in good game, bad game, four interceptions or not, he's not pretending that doesn't happen or it didn't happen, but he's not consuming himself with it. He's going immediately to the truth. What happened? Foot was wrong. Leaning back, shoulder. All right. So next time, this is what I'm going to do. What will happen is going to be based upon better stance better reads, better communication. That's why in that 2014 NFC Championship, he had thrown four interceptions to the same guy, no completions, and the fifth, the, his first completion to him was sent them to the Super Bowl. Because those, even though he'd thrown to that guy, like a lot of people are like, I can't throw to this guy today because everything I throw to him is a pick. Everything you threw ended up a pick, but what was the truth about that? And and you, the next throw hasn't happened to him yet. So it to me, neutral thinking is this idea of um, focusing on the next behavior, taking judgment out, taking bias out, and recognizing that what happens next is based upon what I do, not how I feel. And I love your the way you translate it into business. Like we have, th- we've had three bad quarters. The fourth one doesn't have to be that way. What behaviors are we going to have in place? And and I appreciated the book where you said each moment has a history, a life of its own, and and that you're you're not denying it because that's I think people the problem with optimism is people think like oh we'll just kind of candy coat everything, double rainbows, you know, dolphins jumping, all these beautiful life Shangri La, but that's not the reality of life. I mean, you know, divorce 
would hurt, right? right? You know, I mean, you know, loss of of a lot of money in a company hurts. You're bleeding, you know, cash. It hurts and it's dangerous. Or losing employees, yeah, or losing key employees. But it's so it's just saying then what? Why did that happen? So it goes back to the what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen, and your level of influence on it. And that's where I think we give up a lot of that power. And, and one of the things we talk about in the book is is okay, whose opinion matters more? So. You know, your son, Eric, um, you have a level of influence on him. But when we were studying influence in the early years in college football, we realized that a coach's influence or a parent's influence is one-tenth as powerful as the individual's influence. So Eric Quiggle has 10 times more influence on Eric Quiggle than Dan Quiggle has whoa, on Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm co- No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I'm and, convinced I must influence them much more right, than but, that. Right, but I mean, sure. and, and you still do have influence in the same way like the book we talk about, Nike versus Reebok, and the, the, the creation of Just Do It, which is, right, a neutral statement, right? Just Do It doesn't imply an outcome, it implies a behavior, arguably uh, from Wyden Kennedy, the best marketing campaign ever in the history of marketing campaigns. Outside things can move us to change. As a business leader, you can you can influence people, you can create a culture and an environment, but... My own beliefs, my own behavior is going to drive my success more than anything. So um, what's the truth? I I like to think of neutral thinking as truth-based thinking um, in that particular moment. Like Russell had his first tough game this year. Uh, They lost to... um, um, They lost on Sunday to, uh, let's see, uh, Baltimore Ravens. And, you know, he and I were... uh, it's four in the morning. He's texting me at night and I'm wide awake at four in the morning. I'm texting back with him. And I reminded him a game is a snapshot of who your team was and who you were in that particular moment on that particular day. It's the truth of Sunday, one twenty-five to four forty-five, And you own that, but it is not the truth of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or the next Sunday. So how you move from that is what you learn. And when he threw the interception at the one-yard line with 124 million people watching... For the Super Bowl. For the Super Bowl, he has an evaluation prospect, which is, I'm going to go in on a Monday, and Pete Carroll calls it, Tell the Truth Monday. I'm going to watch every play I made, good or bad. I'm going to give myself a grade. I'm going to have other people grade me. I'm going to go to the truth. And after that, I'm going to take the lesson and I'm going to move on. But it's over. Whether it's a Super Bowl or whether it's a preseason game, that's your process. So, and you know what? After that loss, in your book, in, in, in chapter two, you talk about it takes a plan. And you said that, I think, I forget how many days, 10 days after the Super Bowl or something, you get a text from Russell saying, hey, let's, let's make this the best offseason ever. And you said, let's come up with a plan. And, and talk to me about that plan, because that was so fascinating, and the way you used videos and, and audio and to put him back in the mindset that where he needed to be. Talk, talk about that situation. Yeah, so, so, so I believe in this idea that I learned out of Fort Bragg called the aggregate of marginal gains. And the aggregate of marginal gains they talk about in the special operations community is where you can make micro improvements in areas you're already really good. So my client base is, is typically... All, I, I'm usually only dealing with the absolute best in the world. Um, and I, I pick it that way because I feel like the best in the world are the easiest to help because they're held accountable to a standard that's so high 
there's no coasting to sustain that standard. Um, now, my broader goal with the book and other things is to affect way more people um, than the best in the world, but that's been the population, and I've never had more than a one-year contract. Um, so, it, you know, I've lived in in a really bizarre sort of interesting <laughs> world where, you know, if I'm with a team and we only win six games, I don't get a new contract, you know, and so that's why some people can think I'm I'm kind of cynical for a positive guy, but I just... I don't have a lot of expectations for the industry to grow because the consumer is so confused. What is it? Positive thinking? Are you making me Medicaid? Are you talking about mindfulness? What, you know, like they don't know. Right. Um, but, but what I knew in this situation was the aggregate of marginal gains means how do you take all the things that drive success for you in your business or for you as an athlete or for you as a parent or for you as a performer and even if they're really good, make them better. So even though Russell was coming off this massive moment, um, which was the most televised event, eclipsing MASH in the history of the United States, so over a third of the United States was watching when he threw that interception, it still was a singular moment, and it was, um, it was part of a 60-minute you know, reality that he had been a part of for 15 years. So... Um, I knew that there was going to be a way that we need that we could move beyond that, and it was going to be a combination of of making all these gains better. There was not going to be a Super Bowl in the next week. That would be twelve months from now, and the odds of his team making it back would be slim. But what happens next, right? You know what happened, what is happening, what will happen? Well, what will happen is the NFL offseason. That's the only thing he could influence. So 10 days after he sends me a text message, I need to hit the reset button. So he knew, like, I got to move past this. So we put a plan into place that basically just went to the truth of human performance. What did he need to do based on the season? Be more explosive, run faster, more top-end speed. So we needed to build a plan around that. Two, what did we want to do? We wanted to get, a, we wanted to get rid of lingering, right? the negative that was lingering, particularly in the city of Seattle. So we're getting out of Seattle because Seattle fans aren't required to get over uh, issues the way athletes are. Or for you as a CEO, or for you running a business, people can, you know, can be upset about, you know, or if you're publicly traded, people can be pissed off. But for you, you got to move forward and you got to fix it or you got to take it to the next level. So we need to figure out psychologically how we're going to take the next step. Um, and then, you know, your body, shoulder, what's banged up from the season? What's the truth? Physical therapy-wise, what are you going to do? And then also, he, he was uh, entering this new phase of his life. He had just come through a divorce. And so, you know, he wanted to have an opportunity to have another, that other part of your life. Great thing about Russell Wilson, you know, he's never drank, he's never smoked, he's never used any substances. Not that any of those things are right or wrong or that you judge people one way or the other. But he, as a client, when your whole... Uh, success is based on your f- human physiology. You have a better chance to succeed when you got a guy that's not beating himself up that way. So the plan on the, you know, because I'd been a director of performance at IMG, I knew how to put all the plan together. So we went down. We interviewed the top strength coaches, top speed coaches. Uh, my brother was a realtor. He found him a place at, at Del Mar Country Club. Russ had to be the only guy that was living at the Del Mar Country Club. The average age is 80 years old. <laughs> you know, but we found a place for his dogs. We found a place kind of for his whole things. We put a plan. And then psychologically, I knew the truth was this guy was 
money in the fourth quarter. So my team of videographers, we tracked down all his high school games, all his college games, and all his NFL games. And then basically every morning before he would go to his three workouts, we would watch, um, we would watch a fourth quarter uh, of his career uh, while he'd eat breakfast. So it could be, it might be collegiate prep, you know, versus a high school. And then we would watch that. It could be North Carolina State versus Florida State. But all we were doing was reinforcing the fact that he is a great fourth quarter player. And so, you know, that one particular moment was true and it happened, but it was more indicative of a great play made by the Patriots than some type of, you know, massive mistake made by him. And if you don't mind me saying, because I love this in the book where you said you put all these things together and one one of them, you had a soundtrack, part of the video, which which was head and, and, and the hearts down in the valley. And you say it's a song with an indie f- folk band that might sound wimpy for a badass quarterback prepping for the Super Bowl. But in there, the lyrics said, these are the places I will always go. Yeah. And four times it repeated that, knowing, wanting him to know that you belong in this environment. This right. is where you go. You are an elite athlete performing like a relief pitcher, whether, you know, right. where you're used to that pressure, used to that environment. It's his truth. Yeah, but but that's what I love. And, and you're using videos and music to ingrain it into their heads so that Correct. they can see themselves. And I would imagine that at that level, whether you were with Russell Wilson or Alabama football or Florida State or just at these elite programs, I know you had said you have like limited time with somebody. Like, let's say you have eight minutes with a player mm-hmm. and you're seeing 10, 15 players uh, before a game. They may not want to listen to you, but they'll watch some videos of themselves. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what we talked about. And we figured that out. This is crazy. It's a great question, Dan. So in 2001, um, I'll never forget this thing. So, so Chad Bowling to me is, you know, how you have mentors and you have people and John Gordon and different people in your life. Chad to me is, like the best in our industry. And he's the most humble guy. And he's, he's the guy when my life is at its toughest points, he's most visible, which is where most people disappear. And we, we would kind of navigate this together. And I was like the agitator. Like we need to, dudes don't want to meet in an office. Like half the time I would meet with Cam Newton and be like at a Walmart in a, or, or in a car or, you know, whatever or on a beach. And so, uh, he had his first meeting with, so we had just started working with the draft class. So Chris Winkie was the Heisman Trophy winner. And so he did uh, what he would normally do with like a tennis player or a high school athlete or whatever. He did like an inventory where he asked them like a historical questions, like, where are you from? Where you been? Have you ever done sports psychology? Done this. And ultimately I'll never forget. He, Chris walks out of that meeting and tells this guy who really likes us, who's running the program. I don't need to do that. That's a waste of time. And as soon as, and Tim told us this, gave us this feedback right away. And so in my mind, I was like, all right. So he sees the value in the Wonderlick prep, but he's not seeing the value in the one-on-one. Now, Chris was older than us. He was Heisman Trophy winner and all the stuff. And, and uh, so I said, uh, I said, what if we use video and make something for him? So when you get him in, there's something for him to watch. So we uh, ESPN had ESPN Classic just starting at that point. So we got three of his games. We had two VCRs. We took uh, the piano song from Van Halen. Um, and we made him, and he and I stayed three nights and made him this really cool video with two VCRs. And then we got, we got Chris back in 
before the combine and had him watch that and then kind of talked about each of those throws, the Bowden Bowls, Clemson versus Florida State, all the different things. And then he saw the value in coming to see us. And so that was 2000, but, or 2001. Yeah. And then at that point, I was like, okay. And then, and then we just evolved that. But also getting to see your body language right. in that environment, you know, listening to yourself maybe talk about it, yeah. maybe in an interview, the way you, you know, and reliving that moment, seeing again that you belong in this place, Correct. that this is not new to you. I, I think that, I, and I want my listeners to really think about this for a second, within your own companies, like, you know, essentially you as a leader, like what body language do you have when things are going well? What, right. what is your mindset? What word choice are you using? How are you motivating these people? And, you know, are you creating the vision for them? Um and 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 I think I, by the way I think it's brilliant. I mean the way you're doing that I I just I haven't heard a lot of people using it in that you know in right. that specific way. But to have that to let to to bring them in listening and hearing uh, being able to view themselves. But then to have the takeaway. See if it was just the videos, it's one thing. Right. But it's then taking each piece. It's a and it, showing. It, it them. opens the door for the yeah. conversation. Why did you win the Heisman, Chris? Right now he can go in and articulate it. Okay, and if you take the same behaviors that you did at Florida State into your draft process, right? And then and then we start filming them running and working out and kind of doing the different types of things. And I'll never forget because I love Chris. Chris, Chris and I are, have a funny relationship, but I'll never forget. I was in La Cunada, California, with my girlfriend at the time. Chris had his uh, pro day at Florida State. And um, I'm sitting in her house. This must have been 2002. And I have one of those little cell phones and, and it's Chris Winkie. And he's calling me and he just had his pro day. And he said, hey, man, I just wanted to tell you, I ran my 4.8 and threw incredibly well. Thank you. And like, for me, this, that was the Heisman Trophy winner. And like that to me was, and, and that's, you know, we don't get thanked in money. We don't get thanked in and like I said, the sports industry is, you know, financially one fiftieth of the business psychology industry, um, where it's more of a psychological payoff than anything because because there's because you, there isn't an industry like you can't say there's twenty five speakers and these are what they charge. There are no people in sports, so you're competing against yourself if you get a job. So you win that way. That was when I kind of knew, man, if we could get someone like Chris to see the value there's something here. And then ultimately I would get hired by the Jaguars the next year and begin the journey with Fred Taylor, which I think is a great chapter in the book. But I, I think that, you know, it's interesting because the business community sees it. Don't you think? I mean, the no, business, for sure. It's, the it's been way ahead of yeah, sports. The business community sees it. They, they invest in the people. Um, it's, it's the sports side. And, and, but it's also then taking, I, but they don't pick the best, the business community, ha, you know, they have the wrong people selecting the programs for their people. You know, they hire the head of HR. I mean, I've met some of these HR people and some of these different people. I mean, what they take to their employees is a lot of weak-ass stuff, right. in my opinion. Um, but they there's an expectation, if you're an employee or you're a business, that you are going to invest back in your people. Well, and, and that was a general statement I made, so I shouldn't have probably made it that general, because not everyone in the business community sees it. However, it goes back to a quote that I say all the time that I saw you actually posted, too. I loved it. It, it says, you know, it's the CEO talking to the CFO, and they say, what if we invest in all these people, and they and they leave, and the C, C, uh, CEO says, what if we don't, and they stay? Yes. Like, you know, who do we have in our environment, in our, you know, in our company, um, is it the best people is, or, and it's the same with the team. Who do we have on the team? And, and, you know, but, and I, 
I'm glad that you brought up the fact that you get this payment, this psychological payment, because I, I've, I've been able to get to know you a little bit, and I, I do feel the passion in, in, in affecting other people's lives in a general yeah. way. And that has to be real, because you can only fake that for so long. Um, but you actually are legitimately invested in these people. And so then... So the can, eight minutes, I think, to, you know, like, what do, you, what do you do in the eight minutes? It's just a matter of, like, if it's before a national championship. But what you have to really do is just establish a process. And a lot of that's going to depend on the leader. So what I've learned over the years that... I have to have relevance with our head coach. And if I don't have relevance with him and our coaching staff, then I'm never going to get the time to build relevance with our players. And, and so that's where I think Nick Saban was incredible because I was one of multiple people that were, was part of his psychological architecture. Forbes had him as the 11th best leader in the world two years ago. And sports is an EBITDA-driven business, you know, where the best are promoted, and if you're not, you're out. So anybody that doesn't think sports is a business is an idiot. A head coach is a CFO. Your coordinators are COOs and CMOs. And then, you know, ultimately uh, your success drives revenue and everything's based on advertising dollars and revenue and things like that. Yes, it's different that you're not selling pens, you're competing, you're performing, but... Well, you're selling seats. You're, you're selling, selling seats and TV time and, and TV everything time else. And all, so. that, and, and all that stuff. So, so to me, it all depends is... Can that coach give me an opportunity to build relevance with the players? And so I believe the psychological piece in sports is about 5%. So I'm always going to fit in. So if I'm going and we're playing Florida, there'll be a schedule and we'll have a team meeting on a Friday. The first 10 minutes of the team meeting will be me with everybody. And in that window, that might be part of video, whatever. But in because I get those windows and because I'm a part of the fabric that allows me to aggregate and build relevance with Hey, I'm going to see these eight guys tonight. We're going to see each other for 10, 15 minutes. Sometimes some guys we're going to see for an hour. But I'll never forget the national championship a couple of years ago. Maria Taylor from college football uh, sees me uh, sitting down with our quarterback for Georgia the morning of the game. And I'm walking out to grab something. She's like, What's wrong with him? You know, now she knows who I am. She knows what I do. And we're friends, but she doesn't know the process. I said, What do you mean, what's wrong with him? She's like, Is he okay? I was like, We've done this for every game. uh, of his career. And then she says, really? And I said, yeah. So like we meet in the morning, we watch the specific thing. We talk specifically about these are our objectives going into the game. This is the simplification of her thoughts. This is how we're doing that. But it was so hard for her to get her arm, you know, arms around the fact that he was meeting with the, the mental conditioning consultant the day of the national championship. It's just part of the process. So when you can establish in your business some psychological element that it's just what we do, then there's no like there's no bias about it. Like mental conditioning is part of the Nick Saban architecture. It goes back to what you said though. You have to have the buy-in from the leader. If the Correct. leader's not in, then you don't get the time, but the employees don't get the time. And then everything just is kind of on autopilot and and or know, reactive. Yes, and 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 you're putting out fires nonstop. nonstop. You're, I mean, it's just so, all right. So, I, I, first of all, thank you for all this. You um, bet. It is interesting. I just have a couple quick questions. So, parents, advice to parents real quick, because uh, I know there are a lot of people that have, you know, like me, I'm kids in sports, and come on, every parent thinks their kids are going to the NBA, mm-hmm. the NFL. You know, they, 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 what advice would you give to parents of athletes trying to support their kids? <clears throat> you know, yeah, this is a fascinating one, because I look back a lot. I think my parents learned a lot between my brother and me. I think from what it sounds like, my dad was so much harder on my older brother than he was on me. But they also recognized how hard I was on myself. 
Um, you know, I did an interview recently about the uh, college admission scandal, and people were surprised that I empathized with Lori Laughlin and that I empathized with all the parents who had spent all that money on taking those tests for those kids. Now, being at IMG Academy, where it's $75,000 a year to send your son or your daughter, I've seen families spend $400,000 to help their kid get a book scholarship for tennis to Duke, which is $800 a year. So they, But they, when they're in the Hamptons or they're at their place, they can say, my son or daughter has a scholarship to Duke. And what I learned was their ability to say that to their friends had real currency in their social uh, architecture of the world they lived in. So while you can judge that, a lot of times for parents, your children are the reflection of the great chromosomes you've given them. Whether that's right or wrong, or whether that's not true, or that is, the reality is it's not true. 25% of your kids are genetic. 75% is what they choose to do with their life. That's just the truth. So I think for parents, if you believe in the idea of the aggregate of marginal gains, can you create an opportunity for them to be successful? You know, um, if they want to be a basketball player, can you help put them in the best situation to be successful? Have the tough love to sometimes say, practice is not where the joy is. It's in that championship game where, you know, when you make the defensive stop, that's where the joy is going to be in the success, in the failure and all the different elements. Um, hold them accountable to to not have a way, like to listen to coaches, to listen to leadership, uh, to build uh, peer, peer-to-peer relationships. But I think the best thing, uh, in my opinion, watching a lot of families, particularly some of the parents who I thought did it really well, not just with superstars, but with kids who are firemen now, but they came through Bradenton, um, was make it very clear that your love for your children is unconditional. Um, I think people don't understand how conditional their parents' love feels to them. If I don't perform well, I'm not going to eat. If I don't perform well, they're not. They're going to pull me out of this academy. You know, my dad made it clear that. No matter what happened, uh, even when I failed a class or I got caught cheating or whatever, that I was going to be held accountable and I was responsible, but their love for me didn't change. And I think in 2019 for children, they feel like every relationship is conditional, yeah. you know, with a, with a friend, with a girl, with a teacher, um, and they need to know that good or bad, that you love them. That is just such great advice. And I, I really hope, I hope my listeners really heard that. And I mean, heard it like in your soul, because here's the thing, you watch sports. I mean, I, I've been around sports. I mean, my, all three of my kids are, 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 you know, tremendous athletes and love what they do. But you watch and these parents are screaming. And when their kids mess up, who do they look to first? Yeah. Straight to, they, they pinpoint to that parent in the crowd and they're seeing them shaking their head no or throwing up their hands or cursing or yelling. And I mean, it's just devastating. To, I mean, it has to be just to that psyche of, of you know how do how do you know how do you deal with that when the most important person is so let down or or so you know loving you conditionally if that's their mindset yeah. it's just hard to perform so um, and then this last question just because I think it's good so you went with the parents but so here's an athlete listening to this and 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 you know you have this opportunity to talk directly to them what advice to those athletes would you give from from your ment- you know the mental standpoint. For them, if they're trying to, to succeed in college, they're, they're in high school, they're, they're going through the process, what would be the most important piece of the puzzle for them? You know, I, I just think if you, if you look at the science and you look at just the elements of human performance, 
wherever you're at right now, if I'm an athlete and I'm listening to this, wherever I'm at right now, performing really well, not performing well, it's your fault, right? You are the most influential person in your life. And if you want to say, well, if my coach did this, if the players did this, if my league did this, if I, the simple fact of the matter is, if you're doing really well, it's because of what you've done. People could have been supportive for you. They could have been helpful. Uh, and that's great, but you did it. And if you're struggling right now and you're not playing and you're not getting a lot of playing time, you did that too. So ultimately, the, the reality is, what are the things that are going to allow me to get to my next level? And is it going to be better sleep? Is it going to be more shooting? Is it going to be you know, better practicing? Is it going to be uh, becoming a stronger swimmer? You know, and, and just going to the truth. And again, a game, a moment is a snapshot of where you were. So just because you're at a certain place right now and you're not playing doesn't mean that's an indictment on where you're going to be going forward. And, 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 and really what you believe to be true about yourself and other people might be like, yeah, that dude doesn't even play. Let those people have their opinions and perspectives. Make sure you're the one that's, I'm doing this for me uh, and that I'm measuring up to my own gifts. You know, I was a 5'11 inch two sport athlete at a, at a division three school. I became, uh, by my senior year, I was a, a great small college soccer player Um and I was by far better than I ever was at high school or the early origins before because it mattered to me and and I forced myself into becoming something and and you know I went into the uh, athletic Hall of Fame at my high school um, I was uh, alumni of the year at my high school and I had to be the dumbest out of any kid to ever graduate from my high school and then uh, at Occidental um, I'm nominated right now to be in the uh, 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 Hall of Fame as an athlete. Um, and I know athletically I didn't compete with a lot of those people, but I was I was willing to do the things that would allow myself to succeed. And where I started as a college soccer and basketball player and where I ended up were two completely different points. Um, and that's just the truth. And I had a high school uh, friend of mine I went to in college. I was complaining I wasn't playing that much in basketball. And he just, I remember one time in my room, he just told me, shut up. Like you're a college basketball player, like step up, man. If you don't want to play, shut your mouth. But if you're going to play, play, take some control of my life. And I remember like, thank you. So step up and take control of your life if you're an athlete. Of course, your parents and other people can influence you. But you know, if you want it, go get it and go take it. And you know, I'm so glad I asked that last question because I mean, so many people need to hear that. And by the way, it's not just sports. It's own where you are in business, own where you are in your life, in your relationships, you know, your friendships, because that's what it's all about. And we yep. have control over that. So, all right. So Trevor, thank, so happy to have you on the podcast today. Uh, thanks for being on the show. I just want to, where can people find more about you? Great question. Uh, TrevorMoad.com, T-R-E-V-O-R-M-O-A-W-A-D.com. Uh, also, Limitless Minds, our business is thinkbig-gofar.com. Um, that's more of a B2C business in the, in the corporate world. I really like what we've done there. Um, and, um, you know, in the book, uh, It Takes What It Takes is HarperCollins. It'll be coming out in February. Um, and, uh, so we're excited about that. And then I'm, you know, I've, I've made an effort in, in the sports world. I, I couldn't do a lot of podcasts or a lot of consumer facing things. Now I'm doing more opportunities like this. Most aren't as cool as being eight feet from my house. 
but um, I'm attempting to do more of those and, and build out some more content. And um, I think the last point I would make is, you know, I'm accountable to all these things too, just like you are. Um, I have unique challenges and unique struggles and, and, you know, we're all accountable to our, our behavior and, you know, where we've been and, and, and who we become is going to be based on what we do. And I think that's the real challenge uh, for people going forward. Are you willing to do what it takes? Because the formula is there. It's up to you to adhere to the recipe. Well, it takes what it takes, right, yep. Trevor? Uh, we'll be sure to share all that information in the show notes at quigglegroup.com forward slash 053. That's quigglegroup.com forward slash 053. Trevor, thank you again for your time and for being such a great guest and a great friend. You bet. My pleasure. Hey, Garage to Goliath listeners. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please do your part and help us promote the show by rating, reviewing, sharing, and subscribing on iTunes at quigglegroup.com forward slash iTunes. Your feedback not only helps us improve, it also helps others find the show. And please share this podcast with friends. As a personal favor to me today, will you please text one other leader in your life this link, quigglegroup.com forward slash iTunes, and tell them you listen to this leadership podcast and think they might enjoy it too. Thank you and thanks for listening.